global value investing through a different lens. Antipodes searches the world for great companies trading at attractive valuations. Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes, a global fund manager with offices in Sydney and London. On Good Value, hear discussions about Antipodes' best investment ideas and perspectives on industry and macroeconomic trends. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. It's Alison Savas and welcome to another quarterly investment update on the Good Value podcast with Antipodes CIO, Jacob Mitchell. Since our last quarterly update, a fair bit has changed in markets and in our daily lives. For one, we're back in lockdowns here in Sydney and in Melbourne and other parts of Australia. Most recently, it's been Adelaide. In global markets, the big change has been the fierce reversal back into growth favourites. Index performance over the quarter has been driven by fewer names as multiple dispersion is once again approaching dot-com extremes. Jacob, sentiment has changed quite a bit from earlier in the year. The price action or reversal back into secular growth seems curious given the broader economic picture. Thanks, Alison. It's it's important to remember the rotation into value in the early part of the year was really led by weaker expressions of value, which were some of the worst performing sectors in 2020. It was also driven by US equities, and in particular US cyclicals, um, because the US led the, the developed world vaccine rollout. Now, over the last quarter, vaccination rates have accelerated globally. Europe in particular has done a, a remarkably good job in catching up to the US and now 65% of adults have received their first dose. And economic data in the major economies is back to trend levels. Manufacturing data globally is moderating, but still at very high growth levels and the services economy is continuing to normalize. And as we all know, inflationary expectations have, have been rising. So you're right, the price action is at odds with the economic picture. We think it's a, a consolidation, if you like, following a period of very strong performance in cyclical stocks, rather than the end of the cycle. Our view is that we're still in the first phase of an ongoing rotation in market leadership. Um, and that first phase was driven by a normalization in inflationary expectations, rather than a normalization in growth, economic growth, expectations. So from here, where does the further upside in cyclical stocks come from? Well, look, based on our, you know, our own sort of expectations, look, we think, you know, the the actual, let's call it the cyclical economic rebound uh, peaks towards the end of the year. uh, And then obviously starts to slow going into 2022. But as I mentioned, we don't think we're going into a no growth world. We don't think the end of this year represents the end of the cycle. Um, you know, we have a lot of the pipeline of fiscal stimulus is has been well and truly, uh, you know, filled up and uh, household balance sheets are in good shape. Uh, and as we've, you know, we've spoken about before, in particular, the US. Now that's the inverse of the government position in the US, you know, that the household balance sheet is in good shape because the government has put in place some some very large transfer payments during as a result, you know, in response to COVID. Um, now, when you take all of that into account, US incomes, in, in excluding the stimulus, are 6% higher 
than pre-COVID levels and spending is 5% higher. So when we measure excess savings, you know, savings from stimulus and underspending, they're at about $2.6 trillion in the US, which is basically equivalent to 20% of the current run rate of personal consumption. Now, is that going to get spent? That's probably the million dollar question. Um, some of the underspend was in services that won't be caught up. Um, so we, and some, and obviously quite a lot of it probably went into the stock market. So, you know, it's, it's probably, you know, as we've mentioned in the past, I think some of it will go into high ticket, you know, large ticket items like consumer durables, in particular autos, where we think there could be, you know, a super cycle. Um, and the other big outcome of all of that stimulus was to get inflationary expectations back to this two to two and a half percent range um, as priced by the bond market over the next 10 years, which is in line with the average of the last 25 years. The big anomaly is that there hasn't been any shift in these very low real yields. That same bond market over 10 years is pricing in a negative real yield of close to a, you know, close to a percent. Um, and we think that comes in, you know, potentially comes in the next, you know, next phase. Um, but just the general health of the economy means we think um, the P, you know, this mean reversion that we've seen in some of the extreme valuation uh, dispersion can continue. Now, can you take us through how you see the second stage of the cycle playing out and how, you know, and how the market rotation really gathers momentum from here? Yeah, look, you know, as, as, we, as we said, consolidation now, we're not sure how long that will take before, you know, we get to the second phase. It actually may need some of that sort of the rollover in peak, you know, peak economic stimulus to occur before you get governments moving again. But we think there is a roadmap. Um, you know, the central banks don't want to keep pushing monetary stimulus. They can't, well, they don't want to expand their balance sheets at the same rate that they did mm. last year. Um, but we think the pandemic itself has really, you know, changed government attitude towards fiscal spending. Um, and we think there will be a reluctance to, to, to move to austerity too quickly. Uh, you know, investment programs like decarbonisation, um, investing in, uh, you know, old fashioned infrastructure, also ongoing technology adoption in 5G area, healthcare, catch up investment in healthcare as a result of COVID. All of these things will attract the government's attention. And we think that can unleash, we think, you know, a, probably a sustainable capital spending cycle, something that's been missing in the West. And uh, if you, you know, if you take into account just the, you know, the way that supply chains uh, in COVID, some of the vulnerabilities in supply chains were exposed and just geopolitical tensions, much more focus on, on, on supply chain. We think there's that shift to bring some of that supply chain closer to home or across all the major economies. Um, if, you, if you use the US as a proxy, capital spending as a percentage of GDP is close to a 30 year low. And that's because a lot of that, that capital spending shifted to China over the last, you know, over that period as China became the factory of the world. So yeah, we think that that trend can change. And that's that's a 10 year story. And I think, you know, that's, 
you know, new winners will emerge as a result of those investment cycles. And also importantly, that can lead to a more permanent shift in the narrative away from this sort of perceived low growth, low real rate environment. So given, given this framework, how do you reconcile the recent moves in bonds? You know, we've had this very aggressive flattening of the yield curve, despite, as you say, strong economic activity and rising inflation expectations. Look, good question. Look, in a word, we think it's, it was very much around um, positioning. You know, we think the bond market especially it seemed to be as you saw reflation the reflation trade gain momentum the rotation into cyclicals a lot of short positions also were put on into you know onto bonds which is the you know let's call it the bond market equivalent of that trade was to be short the you know the the long end of the bond curve the 10-year yield um as bond yield as bond yields rise bond prices fall um now that seems to have been washed out now or you know it's in the process of washing out that's that crowdedness uh, so it feels to us more technical technical rather than fund any fundamental shift in the outlook if there was one reason to to question that it would be just the slowdown in um chinese what they call total social financing which is just a you know a long um is basically just credit, you know, credit in China is, has slowed down, credit expansion in China has slowed down. So China's is tightening a little bit preemptively, we think. Um, but otherwise, we see this as more of a technical um, outcome. Jacob, can we turn our focus to US equities? The outperformance of US stocks has been extraordinary. And the extent to which US equities have re-rated relative to the rest of the world is, is equally extraordinary. Uh, now, look, there's multiple ways to skin this cat, but today US equities are valued at 20 times cyclically adjusted EBITDA, you know, and this multiple exceeds that of the dot-com bubble. Is the premium for US equities sustainable? Ultimately, I think it, it, it it's not because um, when we break that down <clears throat> and we analyse um, yeah, the, the you know, growth, let's call it the performance of the US versus the rest of the world. Um, you know, the 10 years to 2012, the rest of the world actually outgrew the US at around 3% per annum. Um, now, in the 10 years since, the US outgrew the rest of the world by 2% per annum. So that, that has switched around. Um, and now the rest of the world is trading at a 40% discount to the US. Now that's as extreme as it's ever been. Um, and you know, when you put the two 10 year periods together, you basically have no difference in the growth outcome. So you know, the growth performance can be cyclical. Um, we would argue the US has had two, uh, let's call it cyclical tailwinds. You know, the biggest one probably being just the Trump tax cuts. But it's also had the benefit of an outsized COVID fiscal response. Now, the other the other aspect of US, you know, US recent outperformance has simply been, you know, is you could describe as more structural, which is the adoption of e-commerce, internet, cloud computing. Look, the US is the home of large cap tech. And, you know, it's had the the weighting of those stocks in the index has really helped in and that 
is arguably a more justifiable reason, but that doesn't explain a whole market trading at this, you know, the highest premium it's ever traded on uh, for a very small difference in growth outcome. So we actually think it's unsustainable. And, um, and look, there may be the question would be, well, what, what changes that or, and we think, you know, what can actually change that is obviously the two, the two more cyclical tailwinds can simply normalize. You only get, you only get the impact of the tax cut once. You only get the impact of the outsized COVID stimulus once. And you also have to pay for it at some point in time. The question would be also from a, a structural growth perspective, some of the emerging investment cycles um, benefit the world, not just the US, you know, infrastructure investment, decarbonization investment, and the companies that ultimately will be the enablers of that aren't overweighted in the US market cap. They're actually, they are Chinese companies, they are European companies, or let's call it Asian companies, European companies that benefit from that spend. So we may be moving into an environment where, you know, uh, some of the, the, let's call it the playing field is somewhat leveled between the rest of the world and the US. Now, given economic normalisation is getting priced into markets today, and and particularly so in the US, what are the key risks that investors need to be aware of? Yeah, look, equity indexes are at very high levels, um, so it's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question to ask. Um, yeah, we we can make a case for you know the valuation of ex US equities, but. Let's face it, it's relative to the US and the US, US is trading on a multiple that it's never traded on. So um, it is a good question. Stimulus expires in September. Um, look, if, if we haven't fully normalized the job market, then, and as I've already discussed, some of the excess savings that we see may just remain unspent. So consumption starts to slow. This would be unfolding against a backdrop of, let's call it higher inflation. We don't see US core inflation peaking until the end of next year. And that's not really an issue ex-US, it's, it's very much an issue for the US. Even if yeah, consumption slows, um, you, know, you take, take for account, in account in terms of inflationary pressures, you know, US housing prices at 20 year highs and accelerating at the fastest pace in the last 15 years. This will translate into higher rent in the coming months, so more inflationary pressure. Then you take into then you look at wages. Even with six million jobs yet to be regained in the private sector um, post-COVID, hourly wages are growing at around five percent per annum. You know, compared to pre-COVID long-term growth of around three percent per annum. That's remarkable in a in a labour market that should still be relatively loose. Yeah you know, you have this, this wage pressure building. And on top of that, you've got this amazing or incredible sort of retail equity, you know, retail participation in the equity market with flows, you know, reaching the sorts of levels typically associated with, with, with bubbles. So the real risk is that the economy slows with inflation sort of staying, staying high, um, you know, before, stage two stimulus is really in motion before we get to investment-led stimulus. 
So a material slowdown in economic activity against a backdrop of, of higher inflation. So are you saying there's a there's a risk here of stagflation? Yeah, look, we think it's that's definitely a you know a risk. You know, it isn't it's not a it's not a great scenario for you know for US equities because that's where we're seeing the inflation. Um, and that's where valuations are elevated. Um, you know, that equity market is priced on the assumption of semi-permanent stimulus, very low yields, and, you know, uh, let's call it a, a profit share that stays high. And, um, and, you know, we think they're all relatively brave assumptions. And on top of that, the current Fed or, you know, Fed, the Fed that we know, the modern day Fed, has very has pretty much no experience in navigating higher inflation. So, look, we think this scenario is is far from priced into into markets. And and with the Delta variant in the headlines, do you see a risk of COVID derailing the global economy? Yeah, well, look, we're certainly feeling the force of the Delta variant in Australia. and But when we look around the world, you know, COVID cases have increased in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly in the UK and Spain and also in the US. But the Delta variant, and you know, does appear to be more transmissible. But fortunately, the current data shows transmission is not translating into proportionately higher hospitalizations or deaths particularly in countries where vaccinations are well progressed. Almost 90% of adults in the UK have received at least one dose of the vaccine and likewise, you know, 60 to 75% of adults in Europe and the US. You know, a return to widespread lockdown in the Northern Hemisphere appears unlikely to us. Uh, case in point, the UK has eased final restrictions despite the recent increase in cases. So the, the UK is going to be a very interesting, let's call it um, test case that we'll need to monitor very, you know, very closely. Uh, look, we expect policymakers globally to continue to focus on, on vaccine rollout. We need to see acceleration in uh, vaccine rates in emerging markets. It's central to a global pathway to, to herd immunity, cross-border reopening, and sort of let's call it regional travel bubbles. We're watching Brazil and India very closely. Almost half of Brazil's population has received its first dose, which is very positive. India is lagging, it's closer to 25%, but in both cases, the rate of daily vaccination is, is ticking up slowly. Um, so look, long, long answer, but you know, we think at the moment, you know, you're not seeing, whilst infections are going up, you're not seeing the same, you know, let's call it a spike in hospitalizations and, and fatalities. And that's what we need to, to keep a close eye on. And the evidence around um, you know, the vaccinations being very good at controlling both transmission, but also, um, you know, really controlling hospitalizations and, and ultimate fatality. The evidence is very good that the vaccines, current vaccines are working on the Delta variant. Okay, so, so Jake, you've set the scene in terms of, of our outlook for equity markets over the next, let's call it six to 12 months. So can we bring these broader macro views back to the portfolio? How are we positioning for this um, for this base case that, you know, we st we're still in that first phase of rotation and, and also while protecting the portfolio against the risks you've highlighted? 
Look, I think the best protection in the environment we're in is to, you know, and to invest in resilient businesses, businesses that are, you know, by definition, market leaders and in a better position to manage for a higher inflation environment. Um, and also, you know, whether that's managing their cost base or actually having pricing power or a combination of both. Um, and then just remaining you know, disciplined around the price that you pay for those, for that type of business. And I think, you know, also there's ways to, to, to hedge, let's call it the, the tail risk. You know, there are, given the, the relatively high level of valuation in the market and the fact that, you know, volatility has fallen, there are inexpe relatively inexpensive tail risk hedges available. Uh, for the portfolio, you know, for, you know, whether it's a, you know, a, a poor outcome in regards to next year um, in terms of economic growth or, or, you know, the stagflation scenario. For example, you know, you know, we have um, ING Bank in the portfolio, you know, as confidence in around vaccine-led reopening built in Europe, financials responded much like we saw with US financials earlier this year, you know, ING is a market leader dominates mortgages in Northern Europe. It's it's incredibly well capitalized. The European Central Bank is relaxing rules around distributions. We also have Airbus, you know, an aircraft manufacturer in, you know, is a duopoly business, you know, competing against Boeing and, you know, Airbus dominates the narrow bodied plane market, which disproportionately benefits from a normalization in domestic travel and short haul in Europe. And, you know, it's, You've had that normal, you know, you're seeing that normalization play out in China, domestic travel, in the US, domestic travel. And in the European Union, you are, you, are, you know, the European Union has the effectively a vaccine, a digital vaccine passport up and running. And we'd expect that to happen in Europe as well. Um, we also have exposure to, let's call it sensibly priced, you know, growth stocks. We see some of the value in, you know, we see value in some of the large cap internet software businesses like Microsoft, Facebook, Tencent, but we struggle to rationalize the valuations of many of their smaller, narrower competitors. Uh, you know, it is a part of the market where we think some of the large cap names are much cheaper versus this mid cap. And when we say mid cap, these are still very large companies because they're on high valuations. Um, we also own, you know, Oracle, another incumbent software platform that looks cheap relative to its growth rate and cheap relative to smaller peers. You know, Oracle's revenues will accelerate as database workloads transition to the cloud and as the company takes share in cloud ERP, where it really is the leader. Um, as a pragmatic value manager, it's about having exposure to companies across the growth spectrum that are attractively priced for the growth profile. Simply speaking, you know, avoiding both value traps and growth traps. And when it comes to, to growth traps, higher yields will force the market to reassess the price it's prepared to pay for secular growth, you know, given those starting multiples are so elevated. That's right. And, you know, not all flyers, are, you know, high flyers are, are, are genuine disruptors. You know, there'll be companies that are un, unable to justify their, their lofty multiples. And these are the companies that will be revealed to be the growth traps. And you know, not all low multiple businesses are, are interesting just because they're low multiple. There will be you know a fair share of them that will be permanently disrupted, and stock prices won't recover. These are the classic value traps. 
in, in the environment of very easy money that we've had where markets, um, you know, central banks have socialized credit risk, markets accordingly are not really pricing credit risk. Um, you're not getting the normal cleansing of the, you know, of the competitive landscape, you know, where weaker competitors fall away. At the same time, disruption continues. So, you know, we think in this environment, there's heightened risk of, of a combination of both growth and value traps. And Jacob, before we wrap up, um, you know, talking about the portfolio, we are overweight China. So let's touch on recent events with ride sharing group Didi. And, and really that shows how fluid the regulatory environment is in China. How are you thinking about regulatory risk? Yeah, look, very good question. You know, whilst we are overweight China, look, you know, having 12 to 14% of the portfolio exposed to broadly emerging Asia, combination of China and India, we would hardly see that as a, as a hugely risky exposure given the size of those economies. Um, it's, it's overweight predominantly because the US is so dominant today in the benchmark at 60% of the benchmark and arguably because US equities, it's dominant in the benchmark because US equities are structurally overvalued versus the rest of the world. On Chinese regulation, um, you know, when you look at Didi, you know, it is the second largest Chinese company to list in the US and it was, you know, it's quite the shock that two days after it lists, the Chinese regulator, regulator launched a probe into their data security. As a result, you know, Didi had to remove its apps, you know, from the app store in China, effectively limiting its ability to grow. China, you know, is in the process of implementing, let's call it, you could describe as tighter regulation or, or regulatory change in three key areas, you know, to restrain monopolies um, in preventing them, from, you know, from anti-competitive behaviour of the major e-commerce platforms and, and fintech platforms. And also just preventing data privacy, you know, protecting data privacy and security. And look, we also think there's just going to be greater supervision over Chinese companies listed overseas and the rules for overseas listings may even, you know, even be revised. What's the motivation behind this? Look, <clears throat> China ultimately wants its leading companies to be accessible to domestic Chinese investors. And, and this is, you know, this is by encouraging a move in the primary listing to main, mainland China or Hong Kong. That's been happening for some time now, initially in response to US legislative threats. Three, you know, three of our current holdings, JD.com, Trip.com, Yum China, have all listed in Hong Kong in the last 12 months. Our global portfolios don't have exposure to any Chinese ADRs that do not also have a Hong Kong listing. The second motivation is is really about the regulator doing their job. I mean, it it's not um, we don't think it's unusual for regulators to want to protect consumers around monopolistic behaviour or a data security, or or for a country to be somewhat concerned about security of data that sits outside the country. You know, speaking specifically to the situation with Didi. We don't think it means the Chinese government is anti-entrepreneur, anti-private sector, or anti, you know, let's call it specifically, you know, high profile internet companies. We think the Chinese government and regulators sees these companies as a necessary part of a vibrant private sector 
you know, providing solutions to people's everyday lives. And, uh, you know, that's that's what we think is that's our that's our view. Uh, but yeah, we'll keep an eye. You know, we need to monitor monitor things pretty closely. Have these events changed your views on Chinese internet stocks? Look, regulatory uncertainty is not good for short term sentiment, and it you know it may take time to to dissipate. We're still yeah you know, very constructive on internet businesses where consumers benefit, such as increasing you know where you know, those companies are you know basically giving you know, greater access to e-commerce in lower tier cities or a modernizing like the fresh food channel um, or or basically, a, a, you know, developing digital advertising in, in a natural response to market demand. But we can't ignore that risk, you know, has risen and you know, it's got to be factored. It will be factored into valuations. For example, we do this, you know, by assuming that the Chinese platform companies like Tencent, like JD, don't, you know, effectively under-monetize relative to their developed world counterparts, you know, relative to Facebook, relative to Amazon. Um, you know, we expect monetization rates to be 50% lower in China versus the developed world counterparts. And, in, and we factor that into, you know, into, into our DCF valuation of those companies. So, and when we stress test them, we think they're still in a, a pretty good position to manage the regulatory risk. Um, and our experience in investing in Facebook through different cycles shows us that all else equal, when regulatory risk you know, changes occur, it often favors the incumbents in terms of actually building even higher barriers to entry. Ultimately, you know, the risk or the fears around the risk become irrational relative to the ultimate outcome. And that really gives, you know, provides a, an attractive buying opportunity. That's certainly been our experience with Facebook. And just as domestic regulation has remained in the headlines, you know, tech tension is also back at, back at the fore. Recent press suggesting the Biden administration is looking to block Dutch company ASML from selling leading edge semiconductor equipment to China. It really is a reminder of how fragile the geopolitical backdrop remains. Yeah, look, the the Biden administration, you know, is picking up where Trump left off, but in some ways it's not new news. Um, you know, Chinese companies have not had access to ASML's leading edge tool, you know, for some time. Um, look, when you think about the semiconductor supply chain, it, it really goes to the heart of this sort of issue of geopolitical competition between China and the US. Um, you know, both countries have a dependence on Taiwan. Taiwan itself needs, you know, tools from the US, from Japan, from Europe to build its its leading edge fabs. But those fabs are in Taiwan. Now, the US is putting pressure on Taiwan. So the know-how on for manu manufacturing these leading edge chips sits in Taiwan TSMC and in in Korea in Samsung, um, and both companies are under pressure to move or, or to invest on you know make additional investment in leading edge fabs really shift that know how to the US or to Europe or and, and ultimately China wants it to those fabs in in China so everyone's looking for semiconductor independence off Taiwan. Um, so it means any escalation in this competition is is just a huge issue for 
the world, you know, for, at a societal level, at an economic level, um, at an at a market level. So we can talk about it a lot, but really the best way to deal with it is to try and price, you know, the risk of something very extreme happening and, you know, see if there's cheap ways to hedge it. And um, we're very much open to the idea that you should try and hedge you know, the, if you can find a, a cheap tail risk hedge. But it is a global issue. The, the idea that that could be a regional issue or a, a just an issue that impacts China in isolation of the rest of the world, I think is sort of somewhat naive and not particularly um, helpful from a, a risk management perspective. So, so just to summarize on China, look, China's domestic regulatory environment and the China-US relationship is going to stay in the headlines. You know, we can't ignore these issues. We have to price the risks and we, you know, and we, we definitely think, you know, broadly speaking, given that the rest of the world ex the US is trading at this extreme 40% discount, we think, you know, on average, many of these risks are fully priced. Um, and you have to look at the the other side of the coin, right? Which is the long-term structural trends that you get exposure to by investing outside the US, whether it's in China or all the rest of the world. Um, in the case of China, it's this transition from the world's factory to a modern consumer-led economy, which is accelerating. Um, you know, by the end of the decade, we would expect there to be at least a hundred million households. Um, that you could class as premium consumers versus 26 million today. And they're emerging pr predominantly because trends that have been in place for, long, for a long, very, very long period of time. Education, you know, rising education levels, technology absorption in the Chinese economy, you know, structural productivity growth in the Chinese economy. So if you if you choose to not participate in those trends that's fine but that's probably the biggest you know shift in household let's call it consumption that you're going to see across any economy and um, you know we think it's it's appropriate to if you can buy exposure to that invest in that cheaply which we think you can via tencentjd.com businesses like ping an a leading life insurance company Tripdog.com, which also benefits from regional travel bubbles and ultimately greater travel, international travel as movements normalize. And then, you know, Wulungi, which is a premium liquor brand. So that's, I think, the flip side to, you know, uh, putting the risks in perspective, if you like. Thanks for your time today, Jacob. And for more information on Antipodes or our views, please head to our website, antipodespartners.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter.